Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. doing a series on um, when Jesus met. So we've been looking at different people that Jesus met with and looking at uh, Jesus through their eyes. So <coughs> this morning we're going to be looking at John 11, um, Mary and Martha. This is called um, the story of Lazarus, but obviously he doesn't feature in it too much because he's dead. Um, but he will get a mention, obviously, at some point. So John 11, if you've got a Bible or if you've forgotten what a Bible looks like, I wanted to demonstrate that for you. Um, if you haven't got one with you on your device or you haven't learned John 11 off by heart, you can uh, get one from the back, but also hopefully it will be up on the big screen. Um, this story, John 11, is found halfway through the Gospel of John. We know that John was one of um, Jesus' disciples. He was actually one of Jesus' favorites. He's called the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, we're hoping that Jesus loved all of them, um, but uh, particularly he's one who was very close to Jesus. So we know that um, he saw a lot of the things that were happening around Jesus. He's writing very much as an eyewitness. Um, many of the other gospel writers gathered their evidence from different places, but for John, he was there. And uh, he waited until later on in his life, and you can imagine he's retold these stories hundreds of times. And at the end of telling stories, someone's probably putting up their hand and saying, what was Martha really like? Was, did Lazarus smell when he came out of the tomb? You know, could Mary cook because she never seemed to be in the kitchen? All of these questions. And um, John's pondering these things in his heart, and at some point, it becomes time to write these things down. So he's written down his gospel, and uh, we get to read some of that this morning. He was writing to set out the case for Jesus. He wanted people to be convinced, as he was, that Jesus was who he said he was. And he fills his gospel with claims that Jesus makes and then signs that Jesus performs to back up those claims. And as we go through this, we see that these claims and these signs were causing opposition to Jesus. The noise around him is growing. Um, during his life, as these things play out, there's a buzz and there's a noise around him. And, but this is not necessarily a happy noise. Uh, the religious leaders, it was their job to keep the peace. The Romans were sort of trusting them to keep these people under control, uh, to do their religious practices, but as long as you keep the peace. And Jesus was not keeping the peace. Jesus was rocking the boat. Jesus was making outrageous claims about himself. Lots of people had come along before and done this. The, the Jews were expecting a Messiah to come to turn things around. But Jesus wasn't just making claims. Jesus was backing up these claims with incredible miracles. Um, he was backing them up with just his sheer presence, with the way that he interacted with people, the way that he treated people. He was very, very different. But he's been accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God. And in the end of John 10, we see that some of the Jews try to stone him. So he takes him and his disciples, he walks off from the crowd, and he goes far away from Jerusalem. And that's where this story begins. Chapter 11 tells us a very personal story about a very particular family. We see Mary and Martha at different times in the Gospels. These are not just strangers in a crowd to Jesus. This is a family Jesus knew well. And it's a story about sickness and about death and about resurrection. You might be familiar with Mary and Martha from other um, points at which they've appeared in Jesus' story. 
Mary is the one who defied tradition by sitting at Jesus' feet and being taught, just as the men were. <gasps> uh, she defies convention again when she lets down her hair at Jesus' feet, very publicly, and she pours perfume over him as an act of extravagant and inappropriate worship. Martha is the one who we see working in the kitchen. She's always sort of behind the scenes until this story. She's the one who's very hospitable. She's very practical. She's very pragmatic. She's serving Jesus the best way she knows how. But this very human story is set in the midst of tension. It's set in the midst of conflict and opposition. Only Jesus knows what's coming next. And it's almost when John's telling this story is it could go either way. You know, we know what the outcome is. We've seen the trailer and we know what's going to happen next. But the people didn't know what was happening next. Even Jesus' disciples didn't seem to have a clue about what was actually going to happen next. And at this point in the story, it's almost as though, will he, won't he? Will he really, really make it clear who he is? Is he really going to follow that path to Jerusalem? Is this really going to end up at the cross? Because right now, he's, he's taken a step back. Maybe, maybe he might not end up at the cross. Maybe this might go another way. And where would we be then? So we're going to look at John 11, and it's a huge um, passage. So we're going to look at it in three different parts. Uh, the first part, I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 16. So if you're sitting comfortably, I shall begin. Once upon a time, there was a man named Lazarus who was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Dun, dun, dun. So let's just pause there for a minute and let's have a look and see what we can see. We see that a messenger arrives for Jesus to tell him that someone he loves is sick. And because it's clear that Jesus did love this family, the next step would seem obvious, right? It would be to pack up and to go to them, to go immediately, especially because it will take at least another two days to get there. But Jesus stays where he is. He waits for two days before telling his disciples that Lazarus has in fact died. He talks to them about timing, about walking in darkness and walking in light and that now they are going to wake up Lazarus. The disciples are obviously confused. We're aware that they spend most of their life just being confused by Jesus. They must lurch from 
extraordinary gobsmacking amazement to what the heck is going on. We have no idea what he's talking about, but let's not let anyone else know about that. This will take Jesus, this trip will take Jesus back to Jerusalem. And you can almost hear Thomas's eyes rolling when he goes, let us almost also go that we may die with him too. Okay, so let's read on. Verses 17 to 37. On Jesus' arrival, we find, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. This was a very public death, a very well-known grief. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming to the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to, m- the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Let's pause here for a moment again. What do we see? We see two grieving sisters, very publicly. Mary, the one usually defying convention, is actually the one who stays at home. Martha, the one who is usually more reserved, has refused to stay at home. She hears that Jesus is coming. She's not going to stay and mourn like is expected of her. She is running out. She's, she's this woman of action right now. She's, you can imagine her picking up her robes and she just, she's heard that Jesus is somewhere on the outside of the village and she is heading straight for him. Before he's even arrived, she's asking him why. In the midst of her loss and her disappointment and her confusion, she is understandably asking why. If you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. And what does Jesus do? Rebuke her for her lack of faith? We've seen him do that. Launch into a parable on the theology of suffering? No, some of us might. He speaks hope to her. She interprets it as a future hope. Of course we'll experience resurrection one day. But Jesus declares to this woman, who's usually hidden in the kitchen, one of the most powerful truths in the Bible, that he is the resurrection, that he is life. He's offering her this future hope right here and now, in the present. And from there, she runs to tell her sister. 
And Mary comes to him, falling at his feet, which is where we find Mary every time we read about her. There she is at his feet, but she's asking the same question. Why? In the midst of her loss and her disappointment and her confusion, why? If only you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And again, his response is not one of rebuke. He's not impatient. It's not that he's answered this question before. He says, it says he is deeply moved. He sees those weeping around him. He asks, where is Lazarus buried? And as they invite him to come and see, he is visibly weeping too. He is sharing in their grief, even though he knows what's coming next. Perhaps he's even anticipating what is to come for him. Verses 38 to 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. <laughs> then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Isn't it an incredible story? Don't you love it? So what do we see? We see this tomb and we see a stone, probably very much like Jesus' own. And here we see the Son of God, not inside the tomb, but outside the tomb, grieving. We see him deeply moved. We see him visibly weeping in the midst of it. We see Martha, ever practical. She's concerned about the smell. But Jesus is not worried about this. No matter how foolish his actions might seem to appear right now, Jesus calls Lazarus by name and he comes out. Some commentators have suggested that if he had not called Lazarus by name, all the dead would have been raised. <laughs> I just like to think that God was doing something very unique. He calls each of us by name. His work is deeply personal. So now we've read this whole story. You can take a breath. I'll have a drink. Um, let's see what else we can learn about Mary and Martha's encounter with Jesus that might be as true for us now as it was for them then. I don't know about you, but the first thing that always strikes me about this story is how unpredictable and apparently unreliable Jesus is. You think it would be fairly safe to assume that on receiving this message, Jesus would have packed up and headed straight for Bethany, caught the first bus. But he doesn't, and this is confusing. We're reminded twice that he loves this family and his affection for them is not in question. In fact, Mary and Martha have shown confidence in this simply by sending the message believing he cares about their situation and wasn't too busy to be interested in their needs. But that makes it all the more confusing. In fact, it's in John's gospel that we are told that God so loved the world that he gave. John writes here and elsewhere that God is motivated by love, that he is driven by love, that God is love. So that is not the problem here. God's love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus is not what's lacking. 
Often our assumption when facing life's challenges is that the presence of difficulty in our life indicates the absence of God. In a very literal sense, Mary and Martha experience the absence of God. But for us, the presence of God in our lives is irrevocable. It is unchangeable because God has given us his spirit. Romans 5, 5 says that God has poured out into our hearts his love by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Paul describes the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee, like a down payment from God on what is to come. In John chapter 14, later, Jesus tells his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. Later in Hebrews, we read that God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Although Jesus will no longer be physically present with his disciples, his spirit will come and live in them. And that's his promise to us. The Holy Spirit is not just a cloud. He's not just a source of power, but he is the very presence and the personality of God. He is God's love with us, in us. And all of that reminds us that whatever God's timing, however confusing his response or his lack of response, however unpredictable he might appear to be, that God is not driven by any other agenda. He is driven by love, his love in us, his love with us. We know the Apostle Paul endured all kinds of hardships and difficulties, and yet he writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Of course, our circumstances might seem to contradict that. And this is not about denying our circumstances. Mary and Martha didn't pretend at any point that what was happening wasn't sickness and death. They didn't pretend there was no loss or disappointment. They brought the reality and the rawness of their emotions to Jesus' feet. Our circumstances may appear confusing, but God can't contradict himself. He cannot be unfaithful. So we can be confident, whatever else is going on, whatever life looks like, this is our truth that we are loved by God and that God is with us. It's not a bumper sticker, it's an anchor, it's a rock, it's our foundation. We say even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for God is with us. Some commentators have in fact suggested that those two days of delay Jesus spent in prayer, that he spent in prayer for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, perhaps wrestling with what he knew would be on the other side if he raised this man from the dead. But in the waiting, Mary and Martha don't know this. And even when Jesus does arrive, we hear their disappointment. They are women who felt confidence in him, and they felt comfortable with him. They are unafraid of his judgment, and perhaps because of this, they tell him exactly how they feel. So if the first thing that their encounter tells us is that God loves us and he is with us, the second thing it tells us is that sometimes our circumstances will appear to contradict this but that we need a faith that is rooted in his love and is confident of his presence. Of course, all of us will experience that if only moment at some point in our life, that we might say to God, if you had only been here, there may be a disconnect between what we thought was going to happen and what actually happened. Many times we'll just shrug it off and we'll move on. But sometimes it will wound us deeply. Some of us have experienced that. Some of us experienced great loss and deep grief and it's shaken our faith because few of us are equipped with a faith 
a deep confidence in God's love that knows how to survive that kind of confusion, that kind of disappointment. For some of us, our faith is just not sufficient to carry us through the everyday inevitabilities of life. Instead, our culture is daily conditioning us for comfort and convenience, for instant gratification and material success. But don't you want that kind of faith? Don't you want the kind of faith that says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, but I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want? Paul wrote those words from prison. They weren't just some sort of magical theory for him. They were well-lived and they were deeply rooted. He said, I count everything but loss except for knowing Christ. That was his secret. That was the secret to being content. Of course, we don't want the trials. We don't want the pain and we don't want the doubt. I mean, who does? But every one of us will face circumstances beyond our control. And perhaps it's only in the midst of those times that our faith does really deepen, that our faith really grows. Because if we want to experience the promises of God in our lives, we have to be willing to go through the process it takes to experience them. Not only that, but we have to engage with this process. We have to make room for this process. We have to practice the kind of spiritual disciplines that will change our hearts. Otherwise, we're just going to stay like we are. And our relationship with God is just going to be an add-on, a bolt-on, until we come to some ditch in the road. And we're going to really struggle to hold on to him. What we need is a faith that will provide a sustaining alternative to the superficial comfort that the world has to offer us. Through Mary and Martha, we see that this faith is not just blind. It's not just a stoic determination. We see that confidence and confusion can still go hand in hand. We think of the prayer of the father for the healing of his son when he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a good prayer to pray. One of my favorite prayers in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat, surrounded by these armies, full of fear, and he says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. As disciples, we're called into a lifetime of learning how to trust in God's love. Where's Jono? Is he still here? He's not here. He was telling me about his story this morning. And uh, there he is. Jono, I just got to you in the story. We're called into a lifetime of learning how to trust in God's love, whatever the circumstances. Talk to Jono about that. We need to bring, learn how to bring our concerns to the Lord in confidence, in confusion, and wait for his response. We hate waiting. We don't know how to wait. We want it, and we want it now. That's a curse on our generation that we don't know how to wait. If you want to pray for anything, pray the Lord will teach you how to wait. You won't like the answer, but you will like the result eventually. So thirdly, what, what gets us to this place? What, what will create this kind of environment for us? What will enable us? What will sustain our faith so that we can trust in his love, so that we can be confident of his presence? I think we have to answer the question for ourselves of whether we believe Jesus is trustworthy. John's whole gospel is about, is Jesus who he says he is? You and I need to answer that question. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he worthy to be trusted? Because if he is, come on, 
I'm holding on to the hem of his garment and I am not letting go. If he's not, let's go and do something else. I don't know what else we would do, but let's go and do something else. Because following Jesus is going to cost everything that you have. And there's no point. What's the point of pouring all that out if he is not trustworthy? We have this exchange between Mary and Martha in the middle of this story where Jesus claims to be the resurrection. I mean, what a claim. I don't know that anyone else in all of history has ever claimed to be resurrection. This is one of the most extraordinary claims that he's made. Martha knows that in a Jewish context, there would be a time when everyone would be raised from the dead to eternal life. She has that. That's within her doctrine. She has that as a future hope. But I think that what Jesus is saying is this. I'm not just giving you that future hope. It's not just a promise for the end of your life. In me is resurrection. And what I mean by that is a different quality of life here in the present. In the previous chapter in John 10, Jesus has talked about life in all its fullness. He's talked about being life and giving us life. Life in abundance. Do you think we have any concept about what life in abundance looks like? It's very well in southwest London to build extensions and uh, loft conversions and be able to organize, uh, book an Uber wherever we feel like it. But I'm not really sure that that's life in abundance. <laughs> he's standing in front of Martha and he's saying, it's me. I'm it. You can experience that life today. Whatever has happened to your brother, whatever is about to happen, whatever your circumstances, you can experience that quality of life in the present. And isn't that the good news of the gospel? Not just that I would exchange my sin for his salvation, as incredible as that is. That's like playing Monopoly and being on start. Of course we exchange our sin for his salvation. That is the most extraordinary gift. But the rest of our life is spent figuring out what on earth does that look like? How do I work out his salvation in me? He's inviting us as followers of Christ, as lifelong learners, to figure out how to get less of ourselves and more of him. How on earth do I get more of him into me? Mostly it's by letting go of the things that I'd much rather hold on to. Mostly it's by making room. Mostly it's by allowing loss and disappointment to take place in my life and allowing Jesus to fill those spaces, to fill the cracks, to fill the brokenness. So where does Jesus get the authority to make these kind of claims? What makes Jesus any different? Why is he someone that we can trust? I think it's because he's both God, he's fully God. He can back up every one of his promises with the fact that he is God. And also because he's man, he's not God far off. He's not God in theory, but he's God in the flesh. I think he can be trusted because he was willing and able to take on himself everything that is broken, everything that's broken and lost. He's willing to take on and into himself everything that destroys and disappoints all of my sin and all of my inadequacy, all of my sorrow and all of my grief. He weeps at the graveside of Mary and Martha because although he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he's not just clicking his fingers. He understands broken hearts and he knows sorrow. Death is literally going to tear him apart, but he is going to walk through it and he is going to come out the other side. He can make claims about the resurrection because he has swallowed up death itself. He can declare, I am the resurrection and the life but he will have the scars to show it. He is fully God and he is fully man. 
His love is real and he is fully present with us by the Holy Spirit. And nothing can change that. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. In want and in plenty, he is fully God. He is fully man. He loves you and he is present with you by his Holy Spirit. And no circumstance can change that. Nothing. So finally, Mary and Martha's encounter with Jesus ends with Lazarus being raised from the dead. We love a happy ending. I would like to have some musical fireworks go off now as Lazarus comes out of the tomb. But of course, not all our stories end happily. They don't all end the way that we'd like them to. And that's why we need to develop this confidence in who Jesus says that he is. The days ahead for Jesus at this point are anything but glorious. They are very unpredictable. One minute he's riding on a donkey, people are waving branches at him and throwing their things on the floor. He's fulfilling all their prophetic longings. He's the king, he's their messiah, he's their savior. They can't stop saying Hosanna. The next he's being betrayed and beaten and crucified. And that was not what was expected from the messiah. And yet he defeats death. And yet he walks out of the grave. Lazarus will still die. Jesus walks through death. He walks out of the grave. We live in this time between the coming of the kingdom, Jesus' presence here on earth, this inbreaking of God's almighty power and the fullness of the kingdom still to come. We live in this tension between the now and the not yet. A tension between sometimes what it seems that God can do, which is miraculous and mind-blowing to us, and what he can't do, which is frustrating and confusing to us. But we have to be confident that we are loved and we can trust that our God is present and faithful. Let's stand. In the midst of Mary and Martha's situation, they responded both very differently, but they both ran to Jesus. Um, Martha came and poured out her complaint to him and she received his hope. And Mary's response was to fall at his feet, to bring her questions. And then as we see in chapter 12, she worships him. I mean, she's, she's embarrassing. She's just out there. And I want to ask you this morning, what would your response be? I don't know what your circumstances are right now, but the Lord does. I had a sense this morning that for some of us, we've been through situations and circumstances where we have not allowed pain to run its course, where we have not allowed grief, where we have not allowed disappointment to surface, because if we, maybe we don't want to make a fuss. Maybe we've been told big girls or big boys don't cry. Maybe we've been told, that's all right, it's okay, at least whatever it is. Or maybe we've just been told, Jesus will take care of that one day. You can get, you don't, just don't worry about it. For some of us, I get that sense that it's like the wound is calloused over and that makes us stiff in that area of our lives. And I believe this morning that Lord, the Lord wants to give you space to grieve, space to acknowledge your disappointment, space for pain. Um, could the worship band come up and just play something nicely? Thanks, it always helps. It's only for the speaker, the Lord doesn't need it. Um... <laughs> The Lord, I just, I have that sense that there are calluses for some of us on our joints, spiritually, um, which the Lord wants to heal. He wants to minister to. He wants to, um, he wants to loosen up. 
um, I want to encourage you to come and make the most of this space up here and to come and kneel before the cross for those of you who, who would like to do that, to acknowledge uh, Jesus' death for you, to acknowledge his affection for you, to acknowledge that whatever your circumstances look like right now, he is for you and he is with you. We often talk about, um, uh, when we have times of prayer at the end of the service, we often talk about don't go without, without getting what you came for. That's a great thing to remind us to do. But this morning I had a sense that you would not leave with what you came with. So I have a sense that there are, for some of us there are things we need to let go of. And I would just encourage you to do that. Do that in worship. You can do that alone with the Lord exactly where you're standing. You can come and do that at the foot of the cross. Or you come and stand here for a moment and people will come and pray with you, pray alongside you. For some of us, we haven't chosen to follow Jesus ever. We're really just aware that we've never actually made that choice. We've just stumbled into relationship with him. For others of us, we made that choice once we exchanged our sin for his salvation but we don't know what that's like to experience his holy spirit in us the heartbeat of god in us and i encourage you again come come and receive what the lord has for you this morning and for those of us who need to recommit who need to say i have a whole lot of crap in my life god that i need to get rid of i need to clear my timeline i need to empty my wallet i need to create some space because I need to cultivate this confidence in your love. Because if I don't, next time I hit a ditch in the road, I'm going to lose it. I want you, Jesus. And I need to make room for you. Will you show me? Will you teach me how to do that? So in your own time, you, you figure out how you need to respond to Jesus this morning. But I'd encourage you to do that. I'd encourage you to come and meet with him. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.